As Todd mentioned already, we are working our way through a sermon series on the names of God. So today we'll be looking at Genesis 21, verses 22 through 34. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt with you, dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his armies, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. It is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would give us understanding as we look at your word together. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us the grace that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers. And we ask all this in your name. Amen. There's a catechism book called the, young, the Catechism for Young Children. The first two questions go like this. Who made you and what else did God make? Now, if you spend any time working with kids trying to teach them the Bible, inevitably you're going to get really good questions. And so in asking these questions, the logical next question is, who made God? So whether we're talking about animals, buildings, or even clouds, everything was made from something else, except for God. He is an eternal being. And so our passage this morning, we're looking at a particular name of God that centers on the nature of God's existence. He is El Olam, or God eternal, or the everlasting God. And so this morning, we're going to approach this sermon a little bit different. I'm going to format it a little different than I normally do. We're first going to look at the context kind of surrounding this passage, and then we'll look at the content of our particular passage, and then the consequence or the, or the application. So what I'm going to do is, is save all the application for the end. And so I picked this passage because it's the first time that we hear the name El Olam in Scripture. But it's an odd passage if you just kind of pluck it out of Genesis uh, by itself. And so I need to spend a little time putting it into context to help us to see why this is the moment that the name El Olam is used and why Abraham specifically calls on that name. So there's the geographical context. This whole thing takes place in what's called the Negev, uh, which is southern Canaan. So if you look at Palestine, you go all the way down, basically where it gets down into the desert region. It's a dry climate. It's rocky. 
Uh, I think it gets somewhere between 6 and 12 inches of rain a year. And so it's a very, very dry climate. You know, this time it'd be, be very nomadic. The people that live there would be moving, and essentially you're moving uh, to water sources. There's not a lot of vegetation, so they're constantly moving around uh, and, and doing dry farming, is what they call it. Um, and they're very dependent, obviously, on underground water sources, hence the well discussion. Then there's this historical context. God has promised to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants and to give them the land, the promised land. So he's called out of his hometown of Ur to a place that God would show him, which ends up being uh, the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he leaves there around 75 years old. So he's called around, he's about 75 years old when he's called. Now Abraham dies at 175. So he's called out of Ur around uh, 75 years old, and he dies at 175 years old. So this whole thing takes place in the span of about 100 years. And so in that time, a lot happens, uh, particularly in the, in the earlier part of that. He travels from Ur up through the hill country. Uh, so there's a mountain range that runs through Canaan. And so he follows that, the hill country. At one point, there's a famine in the land, so he finds himself down in Egypt, and scripture says when he's in Egypt, somehow, uh, they don't give specifics, but he accumulates a, a lot of wealth. He becomes a very wealthy man. And so he's back up in the hill country. And you remember his, his nephew Lot, uh, as their herds got bigger and bigger, they were, they, could, they were so big, they really couldn't keep traveling together. So he splits off from his uh, nephew Lot. And, so he fi- he, and, and then Lot later on is captured so Abraham fights the five armies with 318 of his own trained men. He has his own army. And so he goes and fights the five armies and he gets back his, his uh, nephew Lot. Afterwards, he meets Melchizedek and, and is blessed by Melchizedek. And then after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham moves further south down into the Negev. And so when he arrives, he meets he meets Abimelech, who is, you know, we see in chapter, so we're in chapter 21, but in chapter 20, he meets Abimelech for the first time. And so to understand why Abimelech is approaching Abraham in our passage, you need to understand what happens back in chapter 20. See, Abimelech is the king of Gerar. It's the, it's the closest big city in the area, and it's kind of the capital of that area. And so to de- avoid being killed, Abraham devises this plan. He's going to lie and say, tell uh, his wife, Sarah, to tell everybody that she's my sister. Now, it's a half-truth. She's a, she is his half-sister. So he kind of just sticks with the half-truth, which is also called a lie. Um, so he lies, and he says, it's just my sister. And so as they travel through the land, the king sees the sister, sees his wife, and she's apparently very beautiful. And so he takes Sarah. And he's going to make her his wife. But God intervenes. Uh, God intervenes and he, he comes to Abimelech in a dream. In Genesis 20, it says, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And now Abimelech had not approached her. And so what does he do? He, he rightly, quickly returns Sarah to Abraham and he you know, kind of as a, I don't know if it's a peace offering or whatnot, but he, he loads Abraham down with more goats 
and more sheep. He even gives a thousand pieces of silver. So the man's already wealthy, but the king gives him a thousand pieces of silver for Sarah to vindicate her for what he has done. And then he gives him permission. So you, you, can, you can dwell wherever you please in my land. We are good. And so Abraham takes them up on that and he settles in and he lives a life of relative peace in the Negev. The promised son, Isaac, is born after this. And so things are looking really good for Abraham. And so now with the promised son, his wife, and a whole entourage of trained men, servants, herds of animals, Abraham is approached in our passage by Abimelech. And so at this point, Abraham is is a little over 100 years old, and he has walked with God for a long time. He's been a witness to the Lord's provision and faithfulness to his promises. And it's here in verse 22 that we find Abimelech approaching Abraham. It says that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. See, I think it's funny. Abimelech brings his general, right? So earthly speaking, Abimelech is the superior here. He's the king of the region. He has even kind of a show of strength, brings his general. But he also recognizes that something else supernatural is going on here. The Lord is clearly with Abraham. He recognizes God's blessing on Abraham between the dream where God promises to kill him and just watching Abraham flourish in a harsh environment as an outsider and a sojourner. He can see that God is with him in all that he does. And so he approaches him and he, and, he, and he offers or asks for this treaty. He says, now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. What he's asking for is a, is a non-aggression pact. It's a peace treaty, if you will, not just with himself, but with his posterity. The intent here is that this is gonna be a long-lasting covenant between the king of the region and Abraham and his people. So, spoiler alert, chapter 26, uh, Abimelech's uh, descendants break the treaty and they actually stop up the wells uh, from Isaac, Um, but that's a different chapter for a different sermon. Uh, But for now, Abraham agrees. And Abraham says, I will swear. I will swear to this agreement. And then Abraham takes this opportunity uh, to settle up uh, some things that are bothering him. There's this well dispute, right? So if we're gonna be, uh, if we're gonna be partners, if we're gonna be a- at least a li- have an alliance, we gotta talk about this well. Abimelech's men have taken Abraham's well that he dug. They've seized it and they've cut him off, obviously from a much needed water source. And the text says that Abraham reproved Abimelech, right? And so he, he's explaining to him. So I like Abimelech's response. I think he's playing dumb here. He says, I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today. Um, but either way, Abraham kind of gets the picture. Okay, we're gonna, let's move forward. So they move forward and they make this peace treaty covenant. It says, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a covenant. But then Abraham presses the issue a little bit more. He takes seven lambs and he sets them aside. And he says, these seven, you lambs, you will take from my hand. 
that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. So what's Abimelech going to do at this point? Right? They are, they're in alliance now with each other. They've just made a covenant, and they've already made this peace treaty. And so he, he can't say no. I, I guess he could say no, but it would be really unwise at this point. And so it says, therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So that word Beersheba, it, it means well of oath or well of seven. So there's a play on words there, uh, the word well and seven, they both sound similar. So there's this play on words. So we know that the well now is tied into uh, this oath. And then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. So have you ever been in a, in a meeting where there's some anxiety, right? Abraham knows the, the king didn't just pop up and say, hey, I want to meet. There's probably some heads up. There's some, probably some anxiety going into that meeting, uh, as you can imagine. But have you ever been in a meeting where you, you, there's some anxiety going into it and then things go so, so well, you leave the meeting and go, man, that could have gone a lot different. That could have gone really, really bad or could have gone really, really good. And I think there's this moment of like exhale when they leave and Abraham says, hey, look at his response in verse 33. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Yahweh El Olam is what that says. Yahweh, the covenant God, El Olam, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And he would remain there for a long time. I think uh, up until his death, uh, he remains in that area. But why does Abraham call on the name, the specific name of El Olam now in Genesis 21? What's happening that God's eternality is what comes to his mind when he worships? You see, only an eternal God could accomplish all his purposes. Only an eternal being could remain unchanging in his faithfulness. Abraham is thankful for the blessing and kindness of his creator. He owes his very existence to God, and I think he knows that. He is a, a sojourner in a foreign land, and yet God provides for him. If you, if you know the whole story, God has protected and provided for him every single step of the way, despite his own failings, despite his lies, despite his, his bumbling through things, the Lord has protected and provided for him every step of the way. I think in, in Abraham's mind, all of the covenant promises are at the forefront of his mind in this very moment. You see, he has Isaac, the promised son, and now he has a permanent piece of land in the promised land. That would be significant. The, you know, the, the covenant obviously was with Abimelech, a man, and it was an earthly covenant, but Abraham did not put his confidence in earthly kings. He recognized that he was not engaging in a, in a new covenant about the promised land, but rather this was just an affirmation of God's eternal covenant that God had made with him. See, the well was the first thing Abraham officially owned in terms of land. And so the entire land was promised to him, but this well becomes a bit of a down payment for the entire thing that was to come. It's a little taste of what's to come. And so he commemorates that event by planting a tree. 
It's a memory aid, right? So every time he comes to that well, he sees this tree, and it's a, it's a memory aid to the mighty acts of El Olam, the eternal God who is committed to the eternal covenant that he has made. And so this tree obviously would require water, which now he has full access to. And some scholars think that he didn't just plant a tree, but actually planted a whole grove of trees and that he would enjoy these for years to come. One commentator described it like this, the planting of this long-lived tree with its hard wood and its long, narrow, thickly clustered evergreen leaves was to be a type of the ever-enduring grace of the faithful covenant God, who, uh, who Abraham recognizes as El Olam. And so Abraham, at this moment, worships the covenant eternal God. And so why does it matter that we worship this same God? Why does it matter that we recognize El Olam as eternal, as the everlasting God? And so I have three things here. Number one, El Olam is self-existent. Therefore, we owe our, we owe our existence to him. He is self-existent. Therefore, we owe our existence to him. When God calls Abraham and promises that a great nation would come from him, he, he tells him to go outside right? And to, and to look up and count the stars. And I believe it's not the number of descendants that was supposed to be impressive. It was the awe and wonder of the creator of all of this. Where did this come from? It didn't just make itself. It owes its existence to something or someone, and Abraham knows who that is. It's Elulam, his creator. And when we talk about God's self-existence, scholars and theologians call it his aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, his aseity, meaning he has life within himself. He has no beginning or end. He lacks nothing and he has always been. Our call to worship this morning describes this truth. Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From eternity past to eternity future, you are God. God. No one made God or caused him. He exists in and of, of himself. And this is a quality that no creature shares. People are not self-existent. Neither are planets or stars. Only God has the concept of self-existence. John Frame describes the re redemptive history like this. He says, the, the biblical story is a story of the eternal God who enters the history he has foreordained to befriend temporal creatures and to save them from sin, as well as to judge the wicked. With regard to time, as with regard to everything else, God is Lord of the world he has made, the supreme controller, the supreme authority, and the inescapable presence. See, this is what Paul was trying to convey to the Athenians in Acts 17. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We worship El Olam because we owe our very existence to him. But we also worship El Olam because he is unchangeable. And because he's unchangeable, That means his attributes are unchangeable. And because of he's unchangeable, his promises 
are unchangeable. And so we can depend on him because he is unchangeable. Theologians call this his immutability. He is unable to change because he is eternal. His, his aseity and his immutability, his, his self-existence and his eternality are, are linked together. Stephen Charnock once said, what comfort would it be to pray to a God like the chameleon, changing colors every day and every moment? We clearly need a God who is in control of this world and remains faithful to his promises. And an unchangeable, eternal God has that power. A.W. Pink wrote a little book called The Attributes of God. If you've never read it, I would say grab a copy. It's excellent. But in speaking of his immutability, he says this about God. He says, all praise to his glorious name. He is ever the same. His purpose is fixed. His will is stable. His word is sure. Here then is a rock on which we may fix our feet while the mighty torrent is sweeping away everything around us. The permanence of God's character guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. The permanence of God's character guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. See, again, we see this in scripture in Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord. See, we worship El Olam because he alone is faithful to his promises. But there's a third reason that, we, that it matters that we worship an eternal God. Because, see, El Olam is Jesus. We have an eternal future in him because he is eternal. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. And the eternal nature of Jesus is the fundamental center point to the Christian faith. Without it, there is no hope for sinners. Our eternity is wrapped up in God's eternity. Could our sins be perfectly paid for if Jesus did not have an eternal divine nature? The answer is no. What else could answer for the offenses we have committed against an eternal God other than the eternal Jesus. That is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It can only be the eternal Jesus, El Olam. And see, as Abraham viewed that well as a down payment for the, the whole promised land, Jesus' resurrection, we can, we can kind of consider that a, a down payment for the full expression of the promised land, and that is heaven. That will be ours one day because of Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're without Christ, there is, there is no hope. There is no hope for you, for you apart from him. See, the plan of salvation through Jesus is an eternal plan. It is not new. It's not a plan B. It's not man-made. This has always been the plan. In our New Testament reading, the Pharisees, they wanted to stone Jesus because they actually understood exactly what he was saying. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, what he was saying is, I am Yahweh. I am the eternal God. And so they wanted to kill him for that. He was saying, I was here before Abraham because I am God. Paul describes the eternal plan of El Olam in Ephesians as revealed, here's how he words it, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, according to the New Testament, Jesus Christ 
in Revelation is the Alpha and the Omega. In Colossians, it says that all things were created through him. In Hebrews, it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in Revelation, again, it says he will make all things new. We worship an eternal God because it is only through him that we have hope in our eternal future. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him will what? Have eternal life. See, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is Olam. He is the everlasting God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, El Olam, the God of eternity, we worship you for your unchanging faithfulness to your promises, and we pray that you would help us today to walk boldly in your ways. You have called us out of darkness and into your kingdom, and despite our unfaithfulness, you have remained faithful to your covenant of grace. We pray that you would give us hearts of gratitude and thanks with a desire to serve you even more. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.